If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 16 this morning. Luke chapter 16. For about the last 10 years, one of the buzzwords in ministry has been contextualization. And by that, people mean that they are trying to leverage the way in which they present the gospel so that their particular audience will hear it clearly. And there's something helpful about that if contextualization is done in the way that, say, the Apostle Paul talks about doing it in 1 Corinthians 9. But sometimes it can be overdone. Sometimes it can be done to the extent that the message itself is twisted or warped. One of the pastors that uh, I enjoy listening to and, and, and reading his book said that one of the easiest ways that he finds it to contextualize a message is to think about some experience, some reality that is common to all people everywhere and just dwell on that for a while and allow that to become the entry point for your message and how you want to present. So for him, he says one of the things that he likes to spend time thinking about is this fact, one day everybody's going to die. Now, in some ways I'm wired a lot like that, Pastor, but in this way I am not. I would become very depressed if I sat around thinking everybody's going to die one day. I mean, you look around, the people around you will be gone. Their, 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 their clothes, their possessions will, will be gone. That Everything will be gone, that this world will continue on without us. It is humbling as a pastor, as um, you might become overly confident. And one seminary professor once said, just remember what he heard an old black preacher say one time to a bunch of young preacher boys. One day they're going to put you in a box and go back to the church and eat potato salad. (laughs) You're not as important as you think. All of us are one day going to die. Our hearts will stop beating, blood will stop flowing, our lungs will stop producing oxygenated blood, our brains will stop. And what's going to happen to us? What comes next is the question that we have to ask ourselves. And frankly, that answer that you get from that question depends on who you ask. There are some today who are naturalists that believe we have no soul, we have no immaterial part, we are just body. So when we die, that's it. We were birthed from a cosmic explosion. We will reduce to dust and one day become part of the cosmic crunch that will one day spawn another cosmic burst and a whole new universe. So yet others believe in reincarnation, that we have lived and will continue to live multiple successive lives whereby we die and return, die and return until our karmic debt has been paid to the God or gods of the universe. Even among those that would claim to be Christian, they are, there are some who are universalists and teach that virtually everyone will be in heaven and hell will be, if not totally unpopulated, sparsely populated. Still, so some believe in some form of annihilationism. That is to say, even those that go to hell will not be there forever. They will suffer for their sins, perhaps a long time, perhaps a short time, and then whiff, they will blink out of existence by God's hand of judgment. So others believe in a place called purgatory where people go somewhere between a halfway point uh, in, in, in between heaven or hell and they themselves will go through suffering. They are being purged, cleansed from their sins that they might be worthy and go to heaven. 
Now, all of those things present very different ideas about what comes next. So the question is, which is right? Are any of them right? We all can't be right. If, ever, if we had someone representing all of those views in this room, they all could not be right because they claim things that are contradictory. So what we want to do this morning is look to the Bible and begin to catch a glimpse of the reality of what happens after death, of what comes next. And we're reminded why Jesus is telling us the story that he does by considering the context that we've been seeing all the way back to chapter 14 and 15, really, where Jesus has had this encounter with Pharisees. He has sought to to help them see their sins. He has talked to his disciples, but they've been listening, and they have criticized him for what he is saying. And so his attention has turned back to them with great compassion, great urgency, that they might see the folly of their sin, and repent lest they experience God's judgment forever in hell. And so we reach a climax of sorts where Jesus brings together the various things he's been teaching about money, about salvation, about idolatry, and he presents to them this this totality of teaching in this story that we find at the beginning of verse 19. And this is what we want to look at this, this story, this very famous story that many of you will have heard of about a rich man and another man named Lazarus. Follow along as I begin reading. Jesus says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame." But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. May God bless the reading of his word. May we hear it this morning. From the beginning, we have to take note of the uniqueness of this passage. Unlike every other place in the last few chapters where Luke has said, and Jesus taught a parable saying, Luke does not say that here. And it's not been in the context of a parable in which Jesus has already been speaking. Furthermore, in the parables that we've seen, they've largely been anonymous. We've heard about a shepherd, we've heard about a son, we've heard about a father and a woman, but here a man has a name. Here Abraham himself, a real person, is brought into the context of the story. Furthermore, Jesus is not speaking in strict and obvious metaphors about uh, a, a, 
a master who has a banquet inviting people to and, and judging those who do not come. Jesus is giving specific details about the afterlife itself. And some have taken all this to mean that this is not actually a parable at all, but a true accounting of something that took place, that because of his divine omniscience, Jesus knew about. Well, I'm not sure that we can go that far. At the very least, what we could say is that Jesus is certainly telling us events in a, in a parabolic fashion. Whether there was really a Lazarus and a rich man who had some kind of interaction like this, we cannot say. But he, even if it did, he's using vivid imagery to convey spiritual realities. In other words, the, the details should not be pressed to a literal end. For example, from throughout the entire Bible, death is seen as the separation of a soul from the body. So in the intermediate state between our death and Christ's return, we do not have bodies in heaven or hell, but we exist as spirits. That's part of the reason why the resurrection is held out as a great future hope. And yet here Jesus is describing events in very real, very physical terms. The rich man has a tongue. There is a barrier between heaven and hell. Now, knowing that Jesus is speaking in, in kind of vivid, picturesque, metaphorical language, though, should not lead us to think with less seriousness about what he's saying. In fact, just the opposite. If the symbolism here is striking to us, how much more awesome and terrible will the reality itself be? Again, we cannot press the details too hard, but we should think about what Jesus is trying to teach us here. He is clearly picking up on the same things he's just taught in the previous verses. There, the Pharisees rejected his message. They ridiculed him. Luke says, because they were lovers of money. And Jesus was teaching on the dangers of money. And now again, with great urgency, Jesus is going on the offensive. He is seeking to drill down, to dig in, to come at every side. The Pharisees might see their hypocrisy and repent. Specifically, he's trying to show them that though they claim to worship the one true God, they are in fact idolaters, worshiping money and status. And as we hear Jesus' words, we see important truths that should make us reflect not only on our own hearts, but also consider our own ways. And in light of all that, what I want to show you is that we should respond this morning in two ways. Two actions should emerge from our lives after hearing and understanding the reality that Jesus teaches here. First of all, we should worship God with clear priority. We should worship God with clear priority. I want us to think about how Jesus is describing the rich man here. Notice that his life is marked by self-indulgence. In his day, purple was very expensive and usually only worn by not only people of great wealth, but kings. Here is a man who wears it loud and proud, wanting everyone to know he can afford it. And Jesus even sleeps, slips in a little bit of humor here. He talks about him having fine linen clothes. Now what you need to understand is that this is, the, this is an ancient term for one's undergarments. So I think the point here is Jesus is saying, do you know how rich this man was? Even his underwear was posh. That's what he's saying. That's what he's getting at here. Moreover, Jesus makes mention of the fact that the home doesn't just have a door, it has a gate. This is some kind of impressive home, almost palace-like. It has a wall around it, and one must enter through the gate before he reaches the door. Finally, notice how this man eats. Jesus says that he feasted sumptuously every day. Now, it does not surprise you that rich people eat well, but remember, no, Jesus is not wasting words. 
And this is a Jewish context. If he is feasting sumptuously every day, you know he's not lifting a finger to prepare these meals. He has servants laboring day and night, and that means even on the Sabbath, he has no concern to cease work or to have work cease in his home as God commands that he might observe the day of rest and worship prescribed by God. Now, the man lives a life of self-indulgence. It's all about him. We even see this in his lack of concern for the man called Lazarus. Jesus says that at the gate of the rich man was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, Lazarus' name here is ironic. Perhaps you know, maybe you don't. It means God has helped. And yet it looks as if that's the opposite of what God has done for this man. No help has come to him. This poor man is so weak and sick, perhaps from malnourishment, we don't know, but he cannot even go out and walk to beg. Notice that people from the town have to lay him down. They have to take him to the gate of the rich man. Now, why would they do that? Why would they take him to this rich man's house? Well, remember, this is before any kind of socialized uh, health care or, or uh, you know, government handouts. There's nothing like that here. It was the responsibility of the godly rich to care for the poor. Sadly, though, the, the rich man never seems to take notice of Lazarus. For while he longs to get even the scraps of leftovers from the rich man's table, only the dogs get them. The same dogs that come and, and lick his sores. Now, again, we've got to think culturally here. Just, um, I guess it was on Friday, uh, was sitting down with uh, Melinda and some of the kids, and we had this whole show. I don't remember what it's called. Never seen it before. It had the word cute in the title. Because it was all about these cute puppies being trained to be show dogs, you know. And so they're, you know, they're, they're showing them, you know, stumbling around, learning to walk, and then learning to stay and stall, all this kind of stuff. There's all kinds of oohs and ahs, and isn't that cute? And you should have heard the things the girls were saying about the show. Um, some of you will get that later. But uh, th this is not what we're talking about here. These are undomesticated street dogs. These are scavengers. And they, are, they only hang around because they're fed. And they're, they're fed so that they will hang around and act as guard dogs. And so here are these dogs, unlike the rich man, who even show some measure of kindness by licking the sores of Lazarus, giving him some kind of relief. The rich man has no compassion towards the poor, but even these savage dogs do. Now, as we, as we think about that imagery from this parable, we need to understand th two things. We need to understand why God must take the priority in our lives of worship. First, worship guides everyday choices. Worship guides our everyday choices. Remember, Jesus still has in mind those who were lovers of money rather than lovers of God. And part of the reason this man loved his money is because he loved himself. Now, that in and of itself isn't that bad. Jesus actually appeals to that to that instinct, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. So there's a, a good kind of self-love whereby we preserve our lives, right? We feed ourselves, we clothe ourselves. Um, you know, it, it's actually a mercy to those are in the room that you bathe yourself, keep yourself clean, right? So you're not showing up stinky everywhere. But th there is this kind of self-love that is good. But, but when it becomes twisted and inordinate and you, it turns into self-worship, right? Then we have a problem. And we've got the mythical story of Narcissus. What you worship determines how you live each day and the kind of choices that you make. And so we think of this man in the story who thought so much of himself that he would rather feed mangy dogs 
from the scraps of his table than another human being who was in need. This rich man's deficiency, not loving his neighbor as himself, came about. Why? Because he's not loving God the way that he should. There's a reason the Ten Commandments are ordered in the way that they are. You have the precipice, you've been redeemed, therefore obey. And how do you obey the first command? You put God first. And the reality is, if you've broken any of the other commands, it's because you've already broken the first one. God is not first. You're not going to love anybody unless you're first loving God. You're not going to serve anybody around you or be the kind of human being that just has common decency, not to mention sacrificial love, if you're not first worshiping God the way that you should. Jesus already even said that these two things go together. When it says, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love God with all your being, but the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And what he is saying is, we cannot presume to say, well, I don't care nothing about these people over here, but boy, I'm really close with God. He says, I don't even know you. That's what God would say. I don't even know you. Because if you're loving God, then you will be loving neighbors. Uh, John, the, the apostle, says that the, the same thing to the church he's writing to. He says, look, an indicator that you're, you're healthy with God, you love God's people. You don't love God's people, then, then do not presume that you love God the way that you think you do. Don't think you have this great relationship with God, this mature, servant-minded, all holy and pious, if you're not committed to God's people. That's what we see here. That's what John says, what Jesus says, and now this is what he's illustrating. The only way, the only way to achieve right living is to engage in right worship. That, that, that's the, the big point of what I want you to take away from this morning. The only way to engage in right, to, 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 to have right living is to engage in right worship. If we're truly worshiping God, then costly sacrifice for other people will seem quite normal to us. That cost of sacrifice might just be parting with our wealth. It might be giving literally money to somebody, but it might be all kinds of other things. It might mean think of others when we gather together for worship. It might be lending out that second or third car we don't really need to someone who does need it. It might mean serving our spouse rather than expecting them to serve us. Now, the sin of the rich man is obvious. The, the sinful implications of his life are clear. Worship is not right, so his life is not right. But think about the opposite for a minute. Think about Lazarus. Now, we've not fully explored the rest of the story, but we have read it. We know he ends up in heaven, right? So, so something is right in his life at this point. Now, some will say, well, it's just because he's poor. God hates the rich. God loves the poor. You see that in a lot of liberation theology. You even hear that from some of our politicians implicitly. That's not the point here. Notice how Lazarus is described. Who is he close with? Abraham. What is Abraham famous for? Read Romans, read Galatians. He is famous for his faith. Where does Romans and Galatians get that? Genesis. He is the father, the great example of faith. What kind of faith? Faith in God's covenantal promises. There's not just some generic faith out there. Faith in something. I have faith in faith. No, no, no. God's not happy with that. He says, I make a promise. I utter my word. And when you trust that, that's faith. That's real, believing, saving faith. And so because Lazarus is close with Abraham, a man of faith, it shows that Lazarus wasn't saved just because he was poor. He was saved because he himself was a man of faith, just like his spiritual father. He worshiped God, and that worship leads him, notice, to what kind of life. Here's a man that can't, that's so sick, so covered in sores, he can't even get up and walk. He has nothing to eat. Do you hear him complaining about his poverty? Do you see him with a life full of bitterness? 
Those of you in our community groups, think about the difference between Naomi who became Mara and Lazarus here. Think about how much worse in some ways is Lazarus' life than hers, but not a word, Jesus says, comes out of his mouth to judge God or to complain. I just find it to be a great contrast in our day when particularly the prevalence of social media, you see so much complaining from God's people about some things that are so insignificant. And we are totally blinded to the fact that we can just take a full breath of air and it is a kindness from God that we do not deserve. That this is where right worship leads. It leads to right living. But a false worship, a wrong worship, a misdirected worship is going to lead us to living lives like the rich man as well, missing our duties. Who or what you worship will guide the everyday choices you make. So if you're unhappy with your life and the decisions you've been making lately, I suggest you change who or what you worship. Even if you say, well, I I worship God. What God? Which God? There's lots of people that claim to know the God of the Bible, and it's a God that is reflected out of the mirror. It's amazing when you say, well, who do you think God is like? So often it's, it's, he's just like the person giving, answering the question. Have you allowed God to speak clearly and say, this is who I am? Or have you said, well, I just don't think God's like that. I don't think God can be like that. Well, then you're worshiping an idol. And worshiping an idol, you become like that idol. That's what the Bible says. If you're too blind, perhaps, to see your sin and your moral failures, then let the example of these two men shock you back to reality. Either way, wherever you're at, the solution is the same. Worship God. Worship God. Your worship guides everyday choices, but notice also that worship produces everlasting results. Worship produces everlasting results. It's not just about the here and now. Jesus says the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Just as Lazarus was once carried by men to the door of the rich man, so now he is carried by angels to the side of Abraham. Now, if you have an older translation, it might not have Abraham's side. It might have the phrase Abraham's bosom, which frankly I always wondered about when I was a kid and heard that passage read uh, but never explained. Now, uh, for, for, for taking it in a in a, perhaps a, uh, the context in which is most often not used today, uh, someone's bosom is just their chest. It might be a guy or it might be a girl. And in the cultural context, people were not so much worried about their 32 inches of, uh, of space that must be maintained at all times. Uh, they, w- they would quite frequently be very close and intimate, not guys and girls in public, but guys with guys and girls with girls. So this is why you have, you know, today, ridiculous commentators saying, oh, David and Jonathan, boy, they, they were homosexual. What? No, come on, read a history book, okay? Understand culture, all right? Uh, and, and, and frankly, that's not served us well. This is, this is a total rabbit trail, but it's important. This has not served us well in our male and female friendships, particularly male friendships. If you become close with another guy, you, you are immediately looked askance. What's going on there? Why do they spend so much time together? Why do they feel free to, to hug and embrace and have their hands on each other? There is something inherently tainted now with a kind of friendship that Jesus himself modeled with the disciples. The point here, getting back to the the text, is simply this. As we've said before, uh, people dined as they reclined. Okay, they're not sitting at tables and chairs and having, you know, fancy silverware and the whole bit. Uh, They're just laying around on cushions all over the place. 
And so to, to, to be near Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom, you can imagine sitting close to someone and you, you're going to reach over to lean and grab some more food or perhaps even like, like Judas the betrayer to dip his bread into the, into the cup to put his biscuit in the gravy as it were. You're going to have to lean in and even be right up next to someone. And that was okay. That was okay. The whole point is that it's an it's a image of intimacy. Here, here is a guy that was cut off from blessing. He was removed from help and assistance in his earthly life, but now he has been brought close. He has been brought close in eternal life. It's made clear now that Lazarus' name has come true. God has helped him. Because of his faith, he has experienced forgiveness of sins and is now in paradise with the very father of the faith, the most important human person in Jewish history at this moment. But what of the rich man? There's no paradise for him, only torment. Jesus goes on to say in verse 22, the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. If it's possible in my mind, the rich man looks even worse than he did before. He looks worse in hell than he did in life. Notice he knows exactly who Lazarus is. I mean, I mean, he sees him and he knows by name who he is. That means that the man didn't just say, well, I didn't have any idea that this poor man was sitting by my gate. No, he, he even knew his name. He willingly chose to ignore the person in need every day that he saw going in and out of his house. But what's more, notice there's no sign of repentance or contrition from this man. Worse, he still thinks Lazarus is beneath him that Lazarus should serve him. Abraham, have Lazarus come down and give me a drink. Well, why did he ask Lazarus himself, first of all? You see, even in hell, this man is blind to reality. He's blind to his sin. He still thinks he is someone who deserves to be served. He is in pain and wants sympathy, but shows no sympathy for Lazarus or remorse for not showing sympathy before. He is consumed even in hell with self-importance. And this is, this is something important to pause on because so very often with a, with a genuine sense of compassionness, one of the questions I'm asked all the time is, so, so, so when people are in hell and they see the folly of their way, why won't God let them repent and experience heaven? And I understand where the question comes from, but it's a, it's a bad question because it misunderstands the reality of hell. There are no repentant people in hell. Do, do you understand that? That there is no sorrow for sins in hell. That's exactly what we see here and in every part of Scripture that describes hell. Nowhere are there souls regretting what they did. There's no, there, there, there's no possibility that someone's going to say, oh, I see now, I was stupid. No. In, in, in fact, you look at Revelation 22, Jesus, for all eternity, he says, let him who is unjust be unjust still. Let him who is an evildoer continue 
as an evildoer. What is he saying? He's saying that there's no innocent people. There's no repentant people. There's no one who, who can be given a second or a 20-second chance of repentance in hell. They don't exist there. They, they were justly sent for their sins, and they remain sinful and in their sins through all eternity. So C.S. Lewis is, is exactly right in his book, The Great Divorce, when he, talk, he describes hell and he says, basically, we keep becoming, whether it's heaven or hell, more of what we were when we died. So even if we were an, a very imperfect Christian, but we were a believer, forgiven, given God's spirit and imputed with Christ's righteousness, then for eternity in heaven, we will continue to grow in righteousness and in our reflecting of Christ's glory. But in hell, being a person who refused the reality of what we were created for, refused to acknowledge God existed, refused to worship him rightly, we will continue to become less and less of a person as our sin consumes us for all of eternity. For, for those of you that are really into math and, 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 and science, you'll know that, at least theoretically, because we've never been there. We don't, we don't really know. It's all, it's all math. But the, the event horizon of a black hole, time slows down to a virtually infinitesimal rate. So that if you were there, you would, you would perceive time going normally. But from the outside observer, it just stretches longer and longer and longer and longer. And there's a sense in which that's exactly the life of hell. You are continually like a, like a log that is becoming cinder in a fire. You are becoming less and less human, falling apart, disintegrating. And yet it stretches on for all eternity. There's no sorrow for sins in hell. There, there's no repentance there is only just and everlasting condemnation. Our faith will lead to a changed life in this life. Our worship should change us, but this life is not an end in of itself. There is an eternity before us. So there is a heaven to be gained and there is a hell to be feared. That's why D.A. Carson says this, quote, we must weigh everything in light of eternity or else the things you cherish now may be the idols that condemn you. Nevertheless, hell is not inevitable. Lazarus experiences joy of heaven after death. So likewise today, God offers his promise of forgiveness if we look to Christ in faith and repentance. Therefore, let us determine from this passage to share Christ with confident boldness. Share Christ with confident boldness. That's the second direction, the second action or response we need to take from this passage. Now, right now, if you go to any place from Walmart or to family Christian stores, any place that sells books, I almost guarantee you're going to find a book called Heaven is for Real on the shelf. It's not in a class by itself. It's along with a lot of other books uh, that all are claiming to be written by people giving a true accounting of their experience of dying, passing into the afterlife, and coming back into this world. So you've got, you know, 90 minutes in heaven and 12 and a half seconds in hell or whatever it was. You've got all these books talking about these things, okay? Now, um, I, you know, I am not, as one, some other person said, I'm not a prophet, I'm not the son of a prophet, and I work for a nonprofit organization, okay? Nevertheless, based upon what Jesus says here, I think he would have two responses to those books. First of all, I think that he would say their authenticity is dubious at best. Probably didn't really happen. But secondly, even if they're true, they're completely useless. They add nothing to what we already have 
in Scripture. Now, that may seem utterly harsh to some of you, but you have to think about what we just read in a few minutes, what we're going to unpack now. Think about the story that Jesus is telling and the truth that is here. He makes clear that it is faith in God's promises that brings salvation. Faith in God's promises, that's what brings salvation. Not faith in a story about heaven or what one kid claims to have seen. No, it's the very promises of God that give us assurance that heaven and hell are real and that a choice must be made. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, the rich man was denied having his torment eased. So now he asks for something else. The rich man said, then I, then I beg you, Father, to send him, that is, send Lazarus, once again, servant boy, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come into his, this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Send Lazarus to his brothers. That's what he's asking for. Let them be warned, let them be prepared that this is a reality. And what does Abraham say? Nope. But, but why? Because they've got the scriptures. They've got God's own word, Moses and the prophets. We understand that everything God has said on issues like eternal punishment, the promise of eternal life, the nature of divine forgiveness and reconciliation, he has already said authoritatively in this book we call the Bible. It's already there. And this is how people come to have faith in him, to worship him rightly and experience salvation. Where can his brothers hear these things? In their day, they were read each and every week on the Sabbath in the synagogue. They were proclaimed from the temple as the sacrifices were offered. Abraham is saying, just like you, rich man, so your brothers should make God the priority in their life. And the way they should do that is by remembering God's creation of this world, his redemption of his people Israel. And they should therefore listen and believe the promises and warnings from God's law that they might be saved. This is why even today we proclaim Christ with confidence, not with meekness, not with timidity, not with hesitancy. Why? Because what Paul says in Romans 10 is what we see happening throughout all of Scripture. Faith comes by hearing God's Word. Life is given. Spiritual life is created in people. The new birth takes place when the gospel is proclaimed and people believe. So if we will faithfully preach the gospel, then God will open blind eyes. That, 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 that's, that's the whole point of why we do this task of evangelism, of missions. It's not about us, about what cleverness and all that kind of stuff. It's about simply preaching the word because we know we have confidence God has promised. If that's all you need for faith. But secondly, faith in God's promises bring salvation, but also hard hearts are not persuaded by signs. Hard hearts are not persuaded by signs. The rich man has asked Abraham to send Lazarus to his brothers and requ his request was denied. Abraham said, the scriptures are, the scriptures are enough. Now, now, as it were, the rich man tries to correct Abraham's theology. No, Father Abraham! Oops. No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The rich man says his brothers need some kind of sign so they can believe. But what does Abraham say? He says, look, if they're not going to listen to God's word, they're not going to be convinced by anything. 
They're going to be convinced by some sign, by some miracle. Even, even someone like this poor man Lazarus coming back to life and telling them to believe. Now, if we've read all of Luke and we've read the rest of the Gospels, we know just how amazing and sad this comment is. If you know John 11, think about what happens there. Jesus has some friends, two sisters, Mary and Martha, and a brother, a historical real person named Lazarus. Lazarus gets sick. Lazarus dies. Jesus shows up four days later and goes to the tomb and weeps with Mary and Martha. And then he says, Lazarus, wake up, come back to life, and get out of that tomb. Your creator commands it. Now, he actually just said, Lazarus, come forth. But that's what he meant. That was the, that was the, the, the power behind those words. And that's exactly what happened. Out comes the, the first walking mummy uh, for, and, and that anybody had ever, ever seen. And, and his, so Jesus' next words are, unloose him, unbind him. This has been wrapped up for four days. Let him, let him take a deep breath of air. Now, now, you understand how spectacular this was, okay? Jesus, Jesus actually, you, you, you back it up, and he says, he, he, he knows that Lazarus died, and it says because he loved Mary and Martha, he stayed where he was. He didn't just show up. pain in your life, suffering in your life, death in your life, it might be because God loves you. Sometimes love is not letting the healing take place. Sometimes love is not letting things go the way we want. Just bear that in mind. But here it's because Jesus is wanting to make a point about his power. Lazarus is not mostly dead. He's all the way dead. I mean, this is four days in a tomb, Middle Eastern heat. He is, his body is already in a state of decay, okay? You're not like, you know, getting back from life. That's not going to happen. In fact, when, when he says, open the tomb, uh, you know, Martha's kind of like, Jesus, we don't want to do that. Like, I mean, you see people, uh, you're, they're at funerals, and one of the things, some of them will want to come up and actually hold the hand of the corpse, maybe kiss them on the forehead one, one last time to embrace their friend or their loved one. Well, they've got embalming fluid all through them instead of blood. So they're nice and they're preserved. This is not Lazarus. You know, she says, uh, you know, you open that tomb, he's going to stink, right? I mean, she literally says that. You you look it up, it's like in verse 39 or something. Uh, You know, in the King James, it's, Lord, he stinketh. Okay, and that's got to be the greatest F word that's ever in the Bible, just from my, from my perspective, okay, especially as, a, again, a third grade boy, Abraham's bosom, he stinketh. Okay, I like, I like, I got it, okay. And, and, and so here comes this guy who was all the way dead. There was even a Jewish myth that said the body hung around, that the, the, the soul hung around for a couple of days and didn't immediately go on to paradise. And so Jesus was making clear to everyone, this dude was a corpse, and I brought him back to life. And Mary and Martha, it's crying, they're happy. The next time you see them, they're, they're back having this big meal, celebrating. But guess what the religious leaders are doing? Angry at Jesus, conspiring to kill him. Yeah. What, did, what did he just say? Even if we send Lazarus back to life, you're not going to believe him. And that's exactly what happens. He brings a man named Lazarus back to life, and they don't believe. They say, how can we kill him? Hard hearts are not persuaded by signs. Miracles do not create faith. The word of God preached creates faith and life. But Luke doesn't tell us about that Lazarus. Only John does. But you know who Luke does tell us about? The Lord Jesus Christ. And all of this gospel is supposed to be read in light of 
the 24th chapter. Hopefully by now it's been old and you've, you've seen it. Otherwise, here's a big spoiler alert, okay? You watch the movie The Sixth Sense, the guy's dead at the end. He doesn't know it. You don't know it. It's just like, it's, oh, you know, like, I can't believe that. And then you go, and then they do this quick flashback and they show you all the clues. But you never watch that movie again the same way. You're always going back saying, oh, he's dead, he's dead. He doesn't know, he doesn't know it. The same way with Luke's gospel. You're reading through it. You hit the end, chapter 24, and you're thinking, he's back to life. It is true. He is Lord of all things. He is the Savior. Let's go back and read it again. And everything is read in light of the cross and the resurrection. And Luke is anticipating that. And he's telling Jesus in this incredibly sad thing. He says, look, your hearts are so hard. It doesn't matter what sign you're given. When I come back out of the grave, having died for sinners like you, bearing wrath against your sin that God was going to put on you, you're still not going to believe. That's exactly what happens. The, the, the high priest began to bribe the guards the tomb and say, don't say he came back to life. Here's some money. Here's something nice. Go tell everybody that the disciples stole the body. Even the resurrection of Jesus himself was not enough to convince someone hardened in their sins. Only the proclamation of God's word will create faith. Now certainly God's word has that in there. It has a, a, a story of Christ's resurrection. That's part of the story that's proclaimed. But here's my point. If somehow we did investigative reports, time travel, and we went back and we proved beyond a shadow of a doubt, Jesus came out of the grave, no question, people would still deny it. People would still refuse to believe. And even if they believed, okay, he came out of the grave, so what? That doesn't mean I should worship God. That doesn't mean I'm accountable to him. That doesn't mean Jesus should be king of my life. That would be their response. That would be their response. So what is our response? Number two things. Two things. First of all, we dare not ignore God's word ourselves. We dare not ignore God's word. God has revealed himself through events of redemptive history, supremely through his son, and he has captured all of that revelation in his word. We are so much more blessed even than, than the Pharisees were because we don't just have the Moses and the prophets. We have and the gospels and we have the acts. We have the letters. We have revelation. We have everything. If we know where to look for life and for faith, and we turn away, then, we, we, then we, we have nothing left. We have no chance of knowing God or being saved by Him. Not only should we dare not ignore God's Word, secondly, we dare not keep it to ourselves. We dare not keep it to ourselves. We might be tempted to walk away from this passage and say, right, I got it. Help the poor. That's what Jesus is saying. Go out and help the poor. Now, that's, that's not a bad application, especially if we've been stingy and selfish all our lives. That would be a good thing, but it can't be the only thing that we take away from this. Mez McConnell's a church planner in one of the poorest areas of Scotland. For a while, he himself was poor and even homeless. So now he's, he understands both sides, both the experience of poverty and homelessness and now the experience of a pastor among the poor. And you know what he says? True mercy ministry starts with preaching the gospel of Christ, making disciples and teaching people how to worship God. So, as Christians, I'm afraid that's not often where we live. We are ashamed of the gospel. We doubt its power because we never get around to telling anybody about it. And I can't help but think, in part because I've had people tell me this, and in part because of, of, of how little proclamation or how slow we are to engage people with the gospel. 
We have this fear that if we start talking about a man who rised from the dead 2,000 years ago, we're going to get laughed at, we're going to get mocked, and the person's not going to get saved. But the continuous refrain, the constant melody that sings throughout the scriptures and finds its chorus exulting in, in the cross is this conviction of Paul in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So you want to show mercy to someone? You want to meet someone's needs? Start by sharing Christ with them. Preach the gospel so that men and women everywhere might believe. In an article from a few years back, Beverly Chow Barris writes about what she saw happen after her parents came to faith in Christ. Here's what she says. There's a memory seared into my mind from when I was 12 years old. I was watching from the back door of our home as my father brought out an axe. Laying prostrate on the ground was a three-foot-tall, intricately designed statue of Buddha, carved from wood. The axe went flying through the air over my father's shoulder, landing with a loud thwack. The first stroke severed the statue's head. Another thwack! Then another, pieces of redwood were flying all over the yard. Finally, all that was left were indiscernible remnants of what was once our family idol. The scene also gave me a lasting impression that life for my dad and our family would never be the same. Before my parents were born again by the saving grace of God, we had certain household rules regarding our idol. Don't play with the idol. Don't pat it like a pet. Don't move it like a toy. Don't touch it, period. My parents explained that the Buddha would prosper us and bring us good fortune as it washed over us. In return for the idol's provision and care, we were to pay it respect and show it reverence in its presence. We were to worship it. But she says, as I watched the back door, as my father crushed this idol, one thing became crystal clear. The reality of the gospel demands the killing of one's idols. Over the last chapter, all of chapter 16, we have seen Jesus zeroing in on the Pharisees' idols of wealth and reputation, pointing out their hollow righteousness, and yet extending grace, showing that God is even now willing to forgive if they will repent. And this morning, we have to ask ourselves the same hard questions that Jesus was pressing in on the Pharisees. What are our idols? What gets in the place of worshiping God? If we don't know, we just need to look at the everyday choices that we make. When we open the Bible, what are the parts that we, that we either quickly pass over or say, I must not be interpreting right, or that doesn't apply to me anymore. That is God pricking our conscience, telling us this is where change must take place. And the question is whether or not we will receive this awakening of grace or whether we will make excuses and preserve our idols. Furthermore, we have to ask what idols are keeping us from sharing Christ boldly and confidently, believing that only through God's word can anyone find forgiveness in life. Let us therefore carefully examine our hearts and take out the acts of faith and repentance so that we may hack apart the idols that threaten to send us to hell. Father, what an amazing story that your son has told us in these verses. God, I pray that it would function not so much as a, a means of expressing our curiosity about heaven and hell, but at getting it to the very core of our lives and the essential question of who or what we worship. Father, you have made us and you have 
made our redemption possible through Christ, I pray, Lord, that everyone here would have truly turned from their sins and put all of their hope and confidence for salvation in Christ. And Father, as those that do that, that we would be constantly on guard against idols that would threaten to dethrone you from the worship of our lives. Father, help us to take the axe where it needs to be taken, to lop off the heads of those things that steal away glory and love that deserve that are deserved by you alone. Father, we pray that right worship would lead to right living, which would especially be seen in a right proclamation of the gospel of Christ. Father, we are so thankful for your word. It's life-giving power. May we have life and change today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.